Do your talent management practices produce the results you want? Yes? No? Or like a lot of leaders, are you not sure? Today, three strategies to manage talent for actual results. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 155. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. This is a weekly coaching show to help us all be better leaders through improved communication, human relations, and personal leadership. And a term that we use in industry and academia that encompasses a lot of those things is the term talent management. And that is the work that organizations and leaders are doing in order to develop the most important resource in every organization, which is the talent, the people. And that's why I am thrilled today to welcome someone who for many years has been an expert in the area of talent management and someone who I have looked up to as a mentor in many areas, and uh, and I'll share more about that in just a moment. And that person is Dr. Mark Allen. Mark is an educator, speaker, consultant, and author who specializes in talent management and corporate universities. And he is the author of the new book, Aha Moments in Talent Management, which is published by ASTD Press and is just being released this month. He's also the co-author and editor of The Next Generation of Corporate Universities and The Corporate University Handbook, uh, both of which were on our shelves before we even met Mark and Bonnie and I have referred to on many occasions. And we actually know Mark because he's a member of the faculty at Pepperdine University's Graziadio School of Business and Management. And I should say that, uh, full disclosure here, Mark was my dissertation chair when I was completing my doctoral dissertation. And I'll say more in a bit as to why I chose Mark, because it was not an accident that I chose him. Uh, And so I am so glad to get reconnected with him and be able to share some of his wisdom on talent management. Mark, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I am thrilled to talk with you today um, about this new book. And I have learned so much from you over the years and many things that I talk about with clients and in classrooms uh, that I remember you talking about 10 years ago when I was in your class. And in this book, you take a lot of those concepts and, um, and bring it down to 13 key principles that a lot of us as leaders and organizations should be thinking about as far as how we're approaching talent management from a strategy standpoint. And so I was thinking maybe we could tackle a few of them today. We won't have a chance to hit all 13, but maybe we could tackle three of these and uh, and take a look at what are some things that a lot of leaders should be thinking around about around talent management. I think it's a, it's a great start to, to start with those with, with three. I think talent management is a huge topic and I think it's largely misunderstood. And I think a lot of organizations have come to use the word talent as being synonymous with people when in fact we're talking about the talents of people. And as you know, in organizations, not all people are equally talented. Mm -hmm. Some people are incredibly talented and some people are somewhat talented and some people are good at concealing their talents. 
So the I've word talent, few, I've run into a few of those yeah. in my career. <laughs> the word talent and the word people are not synonymous. And that's, that's the starting point. That's the premise for the book. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Well, let's take a look at one of these principles that you highlight in the book. And you say that having better people is the best source of competitive advantage. So attracting top talent is a top priority. And you advise people be willing to do whatever it takes to bring in top talent. Do not let your own policies prevent you from hiring exceptional people. Is, is that something that gets in the way for a lot of organizations is just their policies and procedures of finding the best people? Absolutely. I think as I develop the concept for this book, they're all based on actual conversations with actual people and actual organizations. And it's one theme that I keep hearing, which is we have very restrictive rules about bringing talent into the organization. And, you know, as you said, bringing talent into the organization should be a top priority. Most organizations only think about bringing in talent when they have an empty seat. So they're really talking about the recruiting function and trying to fill a seat with the best available person. And that's a big part of it. But overall, we should be constantly vigilant to attract talented people into the organization. And a lot of times our HR policies and procedures are not conducive to that. Mm, I, I think I know what you mean. Maybe if you could share an example of a time you've seen that happen where an organization either intentionally or unintentionally structurally has kept them from being able to find or locate the right person. So I was talking to someone a couple of months ago and, and they told me that they had an opportunity to hire someone who they had known in the industry for many years and the person for whatever reasons was looking for a job. Um, not, you know, like begging, but they had found themselves uh, between positions and they reached out to an old contact and, and said, boy, you know, it turns out I'm on the market. Are you interested? And our hero said, I would love to hire this person. So I went back to my company and the first thing they said is, well, we don't have any positions posted. Barrier number one in many organizations, if you don't have a position posted, you can't hire someone. So our hero then says, well, can we go about posting a position? Mm -hmm. So then they have to do their due diligence to look at the budget and look at the need and go through all the paperwork, um, which is several weeks worth of work. And followed by a period where the position must remain open for at least 10 business days. Um, so overall, this was taking more than a month. And the person they wanted to hire was an industry professional, well-known, great track record. Those people are not on the market for a month. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So consequence number one, by the time they went through this whole process, that person had been snapped up. Consequence number two, that person had been snapped up by their competitor. Um. So it's minus one for us and plus one for them. And the only thing that prevented us from hiring that person was our own rules. There was no lack of desire. There certainly wasn't a lack of money. This was a Fortune 500 company. Mm -hmm. And you know, I asked the person, so what kind of salary were we looking at for this person? And they said, I don't know, 100, 150, that, whatever it is, yes, it's real money. But if you look at the payroll of that company, it's not 1% of the annual payroll. It's not one-tenth of one percent. It's maybe not even one-hundredth of one. It's a rounding error. So it wasn't about the money. It was about the rules about the money. Hmm. And if you think about where did those rules come from, 
the rules, for example, that a position has to be open in many organizations for 10 or 15 business days. Well, most of our HR rules come from the 1980s. And in the 1980s, if you were going to hire somebody, you would post a classified ad in the Sunday newspaper. The world has changed since then. And our 21st century fast-paced world, think about when was the last time anybody used newspaper classified ads. Think about when was the last time you received a resume in the mail. Resumes come electronically, they come instantly, but our rules haven't changed. So we're trying to operate in a fast-paced 21st century world using HR policies that date back to the 1980s, and in some cases, the 1880s. Hmm. What can what can a leader do who's in a system like this where there's these policies and procedures in place and What's one thing that maybe we should think about doing that could influence this in a different way or make the case that this is maybe something we should think about differently in our how we attract talent? The one thing we need to do is ask the question, why? So I'm not suggesting that anybody should willy-nilly you know, hire people 100, 150,000 without doing due diligence. But if it is our own rule preventing us from attracting talent into the organization, we need to ask for the rationale for that rule. Why do we have this rule? And in many cases, there's a good reason. In, many, in most cases, there was a good reason, but that doesn't apply anymore, and we haven't gotten around to changing the rule. So it's really about having rules but being flexible and understanding the rationale. Um, ultimately, in, in the story I just told you about that, that person who could not hire this talented person, their own rules were put in place at one point for a good reason, but today they function as what I call talent prevention rules. Oh, interesting. They get in the way of our ability to attract good talent into the organization. We're in the talent age now, where talent is what makes the difference. Well, let's let's look at one of these other ones too um, that you and I talked about a little bit offline, and I know that this is something that almost everyone who is listening has run into, and you and I have seen this a lot too, Mark. Uh, you you say one of the other principles of talent management is the job of manager requires specific skills and abilities. Promotion should be based on the ability to do the next job, not the performance in the current job. Good performance should be rewarded appropriately, but promotion should not be a reward for past performance. Why do so many organizations miss that <laughs> distinction? You know, I, I have mixed feelings about this because on the one hand, promoting someone into a manager role who doesn't have the, the skills to be a manager sounds insane. On the other hand, like you, those of us who teach management and consult in management for a living, this singular practice has kept us gainfully employed and will continue to do so. And the reason they don't it's, get it's a it, good point. this is how we've always done it. We've had one ladder that goes up and the only way in most organizations for someone to get more money is to move up the ladder. The only way to move up the ladder is to be promoted into a job where you're managing people. So historically, we've had no other thought other than we take our best performers and we keep moving them up. Decades ago, we called it the Peter principle and we keep moving people up until they reach a level where they're, they're no longer competent. Peter wrote about this in the 60s or 70s, and we're still doing it. You want an example? I'll give you hundreds of examples. Almost every organization I talk to, you'll hear people complain that our managers are not doing a good job of managing. 
And then if you even scratch the surface to, to figure out why, most frequently, and let's use the example of, say, an aerospace company or a technical company that has a lot of engineers, they have an opening for someone to be the manager of a team of engineers. Who do they select? The person who did the best job in the previous role, technically. Yep. They yeah. pick the best engineer. I used to think this was a mistake. I realize now I was wrong. It's two mistakes. The first mistake, of course, is creating a manager out of someone who might not have the skills or abilities to be a manager. The second mistake is we are subtracting our most talented engineer. We're taking someone who is really good at something, doing the best job and saying, don't do that anymore. Do a different job. Mm. Part of it is the assumption that if you're the best engineer, you'll be the best manager. You want to spend 10 seconds thinking about whether there's any validity to that assumption? Well, and I've, so many times, it's funny you pick aerospace because I work with a lot of aerospace companies and I, we see this all the time where someone was very successful in a prior role. That's why they get selected for the leadership position. And sometimes they do okay. A lot of times they don't. Or if they do okay, it's after a long yes. process of relearning their role. Uh, they go to the same place. They wear the same uniform if they're wearing a uniform. But it's a totally different job. And it, it, it defies logic because if you think about and we see this in every function, if you think about engineers, would you ever hire an engineer who had no training experience or skill in engineering? Of course not. Would you ever hire an accountant who had no training skill or experience in accounting? Of course not. Yeah. A nurse who had no training skills or experience in nursing. Right. Right. But would you ever hire someone to be a manager who had no training skills or experience to be a manager? Happens every day. Happens every <laughs> day. Organization. And it, it is the most simple concept, but we miss it. And people say to me, well, if we don't promote the best engineer, who should we make the manager? Well, you should apply the exact same rigor to the manager job that you do to any other job. When you're hiring that engineer originally, you look for the best combination of skills, experience, and education to do the job you're hiring that person for. Now, we have well-documented and perfectly understand the skills and competencies to be a manager, right? That's the sort of thing we're really good at. And yet we don't try and match our, our manager candidates to those competencies. We match our manager candidates to the competencies on the previous job. I know a lot of people are listening to this and thinking, okay, yeah, we've done that in our organization too. Um, what is, what's one thing that if you're organ if you're in an organization that's that's done this and almost everyone is in an organization who has done this to some extent what's one thing that we could do that would start to turn the table a little bit and start to look at the next management position that's available and think about this a little bit differently so I, i've thought about this quite a bit and i do have an answer to how we can avoid this trap and it's a little technical so you'll have to bear with me what you need to do is stop doing it just stop promoting the best man, the best engineer, the best nurse, the best accountant to be a manager. That's number one. It sounds radical. This is pretty obvious. So what should we do? We should look at the competencies for the manager role. And we know this list. We know it well. Good communication skills, care for other employees, some understanding of the technical aspects of the job, being a good coach. We know this stuff. We should look for the candidate who possesses those skills. The other thing we should do, even before the seat opens up, is we should talk to our engineers, accountants, nurses, whatever, and see who really wants to be in people management. Because a big part of it, they, these great engineers who we promote, they don't even want to manage people. 
Can, can I say this was a real surprise for me when I started working in the training industry is I went into the industry just assuming everyone wanted to become a manager of people because I saw that growing up that my dad was a manager of people for many, many years. And that's what was taught to me in, in business school. You know, you move up. And I was really surprised initially when I talked to a lot of technical people who said, I want nothing to do with managing people. I'm not even sure I want to interact that much with the people <laughs> that I have to work with on a daily basis. Um, and I, that really surprised me at first. And now I, re, now I get it. But it took a few years of really having to change my paradigm and my understanding of how, you know, what people want and, and the kind of work people like to do. The big eye-opener for me was... Uh, mostly I teach uh, MBA classes to mid-career professionals. Once a year, I teach the full-time MBA students, the young people in their early to mid-20s who are just starting out in their career, and they're devoting two years of their life to get an MBA. And I always ask two questions. The first question is, how many of you want to be managers? Guess what percent of the hands go up? Almost all of them. Yeah, they're yeah. getting an MBA. Then I ask the question, how many of you want to spend your entire professional career doing the things that managers do every day when they manage people? You'd be amazed at how quickly those hands go down. Mm. There's maybe three hands left up in the room, and I wonder how many of those three are even telling the truth. But some, of, some people really do want to manage people. They're good at it, and they like it. For the rest of us, as you said, we're brought up thinking the only way to move up in the organization is to to become promoted to be a manager of people. That's where the prestige is, that's where the titles are, and in most organizations, it's the only path to more money. Smarter organizations now, and to, to seriously answer your question about what can organizations do, they can develop, and we've seen this a lot, two different tracks. A practitioner track where the best engineers can be promoted to be senior engineers, master engineers, make more money, perhaps manage projects, without the responsibility of managing people. Mm. Those who want to manage people, we put them on that track. And then before that seat opens up and we stick somebody in it, we also develop people and develop their skills. So we train them how to be managers. Part of why that superior engineer fails as a manager is we've promoted them into the position and haven't given them the skills and tools needed to succeed. A practical question for you. Say I'm working in an organization and we haven't done a lot of thinking on this, and maybe we don't even really know what the competencies are for being a good manager and an effective leader. What's a, what's a place or resource people could go to just you know, really help them identify what are some of those you know, top 10, 15, 20 competencies? It's really funny because Google, which is a very data-driven company, uh, embarked on a project called Project Oxygen. I've heard of Oxygen. Yeah. And they started with the assumption that managers matter, that a good manager makes a difference. And we all know that we've all had good managers that have really helped our career and bad managers that have literally driven us out of an organization. So Google started with the assumption that managers matter. And then they spent 18 months doing some very in-depth research with their thousands of employees managers and tens of thousands of employees to see what the characteristics are of a good manager. And you, you know, using typically Google data-driven methodology, they spent a year and a half and came up with a list of eight things that great managers do. And uh, not surprisingly, you can Google Project Oxygen and look at the list of eight things. The 
incredibly surprising thing is there are absolutely no surprises on this list. Mm. Dave, if I asked you to write a list of eight things managers do, you'll probably hit six or seven of the eight that it took Google 18 months to find out. But good communicator, good coach, care about your employees, the usual suspects. But if you just Google the Project Oxygen 8, now you've got a list of managerial competencies. And you can see it's skills that are not highly sophisticated, but they're not skills that everyone possesses. Perfect. I love it. And I, I had forgotten about that project. And I think I even have a couple articles. So we'll link to that in the show notes. That'll be a good starting point for people who don't yet have a list of competencies. Okay, let's uh, let's look at one final one here, Mark, in your book. Um, you mentioned that another principle uh, getting actually this relates exactly to what we were just talking about as far as training. If you're going to treat training and development as an investment, then you must be able to demonstrate a return on that investment. That means that every program should be designed to deliver a specific business result and should be held accountable for achieving that result. It seems to me, having been in the training industry now for over a decade, that this is unfortunately more of the exception than it is the rule. Absolutely. You found that to be true too. And we can go back to the great, uh, late great Dr. Donald Kirkpatrick, who bestowed upon us his four levels. And as you know, Kirkpatrick said we can evaluate programs based on satisfaction, based on learning, based on behavior change, or based on business results. And as you go up the spectrum through those four, it goes from easy to hard. So historically, and, and you know what we know about education from the world of higher education and K through 12 education, is the focus is on learning. So mostly we measure learning outcomes. Mm-hmm. Did the people learn what they were supposed to? Well, some research from Jack Phillips shows that 60 to 90% of everything that people learn in a training program never gets used on the job. So for those of us who are training professionals, it's hard to accept that 60 to 90% of everything you do, even if people successfully learn it, never gets used on the job. Mm. And if you think about, we've all taken training programs, and sometimes you go to a training program and say, well, that was a complete waste of time. Other times you go and say, hey, that was kind of interesting. I learned something. And then you go back to work and do everything exactly the same way. Mm. Turns out that was a waste of time too. It was interesting, but if you're not using it, the company's not really receiving any benefit. So what we need to do is, and it's not a measurement issue, it's a design issue. We need to design our programs to drive a specific business result. Historically, we've driven certain learning results, believing that if these people learn the right things in class, that will translate to behavior change, that will translate to business results. As you and I both know, it doesn't always happen that way. Well, and I've heard the term a few times, intertrainment, of that it's interesting how often I've had conversations with companies about, we just want people to have a good experience. And, and if that truly is the business objective, there's not necessarily anything horribly wrong with that. Um, but it, it is, I've been really struck by how often I've had conversations around training strategy and the conversation is lo- the long, there's a more detailed conversation about what's going to be served at lunch than there is about the outcome for business results from what people are going to learn. We don't often, as organizations and leaders, take the time to really think through, okay, because of what we are learning here and what people are learning, results in whatever the, that business objective is going to be. And don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of lunch, and I think it's very important. Oh, me too, me too. Especially chicken salad sandwiches <laughs> at training. Excellent. Um, 
and you know, mid afternoon, we've, we've got to have the cookies. Of course. <laughs> and that's where our budget goes. And you're right. That's where our conversation goes. And even a big part of it, of course, is getting people in a room together and networking and understanding the value of our relationships. And we've got a fancy term for that now, social capital. And we put people in a room together, we enhance their social capital. But if that's really what you're trying to do, you know, throw a party, hire a comedian, everybody will be entertained. We'll network. It'll be great. Mm-hmm. But the real value of training, of course, is, as you mentioned at the top of the show, our greatest asset, our most valuable resources are people. The best way to enhance that asset value is to develop the people you already have. We talked earlier about attracting new talent into the organization. That's another way of enhancing the asset value. That's much more expensive. But you can really enhance the asset value just by developing the skills of the people in your organization. But those skills need to be developed around a specific business objective. And a lot of organizations that I I work with now, especially in some of the more sophisticated corporate universities, will not deliver a program unless it's designed to return a very specific, quantifiable, measurable business objective. And the program is not successful unless that business objective is realized, Mm. even if the people love the course and even if the course gets good evaluations. And of course, that's why so many of our leadership development programs end up not adding the value that we hope. And I suspect that this is also a challenge that a lot of our listeners have of thinking, you know, I've, I've run programs before, maybe I've been part of putting together a program where you know people had a good experience, they liked it, but we didn't necessarily see the business shift or results that we were looking for. For organizations that haven't done a lot of thinking on that, where's a starting point as far as what they can do to begin to put those links together between what's happening in that training experience and how it ultimately is going to reach that business objective? And this is where we go back to one of Stephen Covey's very basic seven habits, begin with the end in mind. And as I walk through the process with people, I ask them, what is the business outcome you're trying to drive here? And in some cases, and and as I mentioned, I do this a lot with leadership development programs, which I think frequently do not deliver the value that we hope for. And I ask them, what are you trying to do here? And they say, well, we're trying to develop leadership. And I ask why? And they said, well, isn't leadership a good thing? As if it's a given. And I ask, uh, they're answering my question with a question. I'm going to answer their question with a question. I don't know. Why is leadership a good thing? And we get into these very circular rationales where people are doing leadership development programs to develop leadership. And ultimately, in those programs, leadership becomes the goal of the program. Where if you step back and think about about it, leadership is a means to an end. Good leadership should deliver good business results. Mm. But we create programs to deliver good leadership. And if you really ask the question, what are the business results associated with leadership? It's very hard to connect the dots. So I ask them, and that's why we want to move a step down from leadership development programs to more tangible business results. If you have a program, what are the business outcomes that we should realize if we successfully deliver this program? Mm, And a business outcome would be increased sales, increased profit, reduced costs, even things that we can translate into money like reduced churnover of new employees, uh, employee engagement. We know there are dollars associated with that. Those are measurable business outcomes. Leadership is not a measurable business outcome. 
there have been a lot of times in my career where I've tried, we've tried to engage in those conversations with companies and people just aren't interested or they don't know how to even have that conversation. We end up going back to the, we want a, we want a training program on this. And it seems like the more we try to connect the business results for a lot of organizations, they're just not that interested in really having that dialogue. And I always find that so curious. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have any advice for me. <laughs> well, I, I think they're going to become a lot more interested because through the years working with corporate universities, people are always saying, well, how much does a corporate university cost? How much does this, does it cost to deliver a training program? Uh, and my answer is always the same. It's not a cost. It's an investment, um, which is a good way of getting the funding you need. But if you're going to call something an investment, that's going to raise a question. And you know what that question is. What's the return we're getting as you, an organization? You better have an answer. Yeah. And these people you've been working with who are doing training programs, who are not willing to engage in what are the business outcomes we're trying to drive, they're not going to be able to answer the return on investment question. And in, in that case, training does become a cost. And if you're willing to view it as a necessary evil, which I've heard the term used for training, then go ahead and spend money. But it's just an expense. And if you're viewing training and using the word evil, you're probably not maximizing the asset value of your talent. But if you can get them to focus on driving a business outcome and measuring it, you can actually see a positive return on the investment. And then the question isn't how much does this cost, but how much more should we invest since we're getting a positive return. And the thing about the people stuff that we talk about in aha moments in talent management, it's not just, you, you've heard the term before, people make air quotes and say soft skills. No, we're talking about real money here. And every other investment you make in the organization, in financial investments, capital investments, you expect to see a return. Well, we should hold our people departments accountable at the same level. We're going to invest in our people and we expect a return on that investment. Well, speaking of return on investment, when I was getting my degree at Pepperdine, one of the choices you have to make as a doctoral student is who you're going to pick as your dissertation chair. And it was no accident that I picked Mark. Um, and the thing I love about you, Mark, is not only do you have a tremendous amount of experience and wisdom, but you also have a lot of the business practical experience to go along with it. And uh, you, you just have the full package as far as being able to make a compelling case for something to understand the business realities. And that's why I picked you as my chair. And it was absolutely the right choice. I've heard of uh, a lot of horror stories of people over the years having crazy dissertation chairs. And you were so incredible and supportive through the process. Well, Dave, as you know, I, I love teaching, but I always tell people for 20 years before I became a professor, I actually worked for a living. Yeah, yeah. So I do have that business experience. Well, and you work as a professor too, I know, um, and still do work and do a lot of consulting. So I, I hope folks check out the book because you really do provide a wonderful practical look at this, but also the wisdom and perspective of having advised a lot of leaders over the years. And speaking of the book, we have a special, uh, you have a special deal for our listeners from uh, ASTD, which actually is their name's changing too. And maybe you could share a little bit about that too, because that's yeah. something I didn't know until we talked today. Yeah. The, the book is called Aha Moments in Talent Management. It's published by ASTD Press. And as many of you know, ASTD is the American Society for Training and Development. But very recently, the organization changed its name to ATD, the Association for Talent Development, which makes a, a lot more sense because more and more in organizations, we talk about talent development as opposed to training. Dave, for listeners of your show, ASTD was gracious enough to offer a 15% discount 
Uh, if anybody goes to the website astd.org slash aha moments, you will see the uh, page for aha moments and talent management. And if you order it directly from the publisher, your listeners will get a 15% discount. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for ATD for their generosity and uh, uh, giving our audience a discount. And I do hope you go check it out. And, uh, and there's just a, there's a lot in the book we didn't even hit on today, but there's so much there that really provides a lot of practical wisdom. And uh, Mark, I just really appreciate you. Uh, this is your third book now. You've done a lot to contribute to the talent management world and, and wisdom and practical advice. So thank you so much for that. And I, I really appreciate you joining me today on the show. Happy to be here, Dave, anytime. Mark Allen is the author of the new book, Aha Moments in Talent Management. It's published by ASTD Press, and you can get it at astd.org slash aha moments. Thanks, Mark. Mark has really been a mentor to me in many ways over the years in challenging the assumptions that I make about people and organizations and talent management. And I hope he's done a little bit of that for you today too. And I know his book provides a lot more of that for those of you who are looking for more. That's a great resource. My practical advice for you this week is to consider the training that you or your organization are doing now or maybe doing in the near future and to consider asking these two questions when you're in the process of training or even better as you're planning to do training and thinking about the strategy you're going to use and who you're going to engage with in order to do that. The two questions are, how will this improve one of our key business results or even hopefully more than one business result? And then how will you measure it? Those two questions are key in getting everyone involved at the table uh, both internally and sometimes externally too, of thinking, how are we actually going to make sure that this all measures up and the investment is worth it? Now, asking those two questions doesn't guarantee a return on investment, but it gets everyone thinking about how are we going to, pr- to produce and strategize and develop a program that's going to address that. Now, many of you know that I've been involved in the training industry for over a decade. I've worked with the Dale Carnegie organization. I've done some consulting on training projects on my own and design programs. I have been involved in so many of these conversations over the years. And uh, I can tell you, if I think back to how many times a client or a potential client has directly asked this question of me or my organization, how will you improve one of our key business results or how does this improve a result and how will you measure it? I can only remember one time in 10 years that I've directly and clearly gotten those questions. Most of the time, organizations and leaders assume that if we do a program on communication skills or training or presentation or something else, that that is going to lead to those results. And sometimes it does. And unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't. Not because everyone's intentions aren't good, but because the strategy wasn't there from the beginning. So my advice for you this week is to take those two questions into every conversation you have around not only training, but talent management in general and developing people. And if you do that, you'll be more likely to be thinking from the beginning how you can contribute to a great return on investment for you and your organization. 
to join the conversation online at coachingforleaders slash 155. That's the address for this episode. And of course, you can leave a comment uh, in the show notes there at the very bottom. And comments, questions, and feedback for future shows are always welcome at coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And speaking of questions, next week for episode 156 is going to be an all-question-and-answer show. The topic for this month is going to be getting organized. So I am accepting questions on that topic or anything related to it. But even if you have a good question that maybe doesn't fall under that, that's fair game too, because I actually am a little short on questions. So uh, the good news for you is if you get your question in this week, it's even more likely it will be considered for the show. So take a moment this week, uh, hop on to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. If you've been thinking about something, maybe even this episode raised a question for you. Leave that question and we will address it next week on the Q&A show, the first Monday of the month. Hey, a very special thank you this week to all the folks who have joined the weekly update in the last week. That's a whole bunch of people this last week. Thank you, all of you. Uh, if you join the weekly update as well, you'll receive the show notes for every single episode in your email box on Wednesday, so you don't have to track down all this information later. The notes and links will always come in your email box. And along with that, in the same email is a weekly article from me, something that'll help you to continue to practically become a more effective leader each week. And in addition, when you join, you also get the the guide to the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others, including two of those books that I rely on weekly. So you can do that at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And the folks this week who did that were Rosie Decker, Deb Simpson, Andy Schaefer, Gabrielle Franco, Dick, uh, I'm sorry, Dirk Van Loon, Justin Schemerbeck, Anna Mejia, Sadiq Iklas, Patty Blaine, Tabby Cowley, Monica Alawalia, Howard Zing, Andrew Hopson, Ellen Boyne, Tata Huber, Van Cross, Sujit Singh, Sean James, Patrick Braco or Braco, and Marike Guzo. Thank you so much for joining the weekly updates. And again, if you'd like to jump in as well, coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And I would love to have you join the community as well. And as always, so thrilled that you took time to join this conversation today. And so grateful for all of you who have reached out to me in the past few weeks with comments or questions about the show or, or just sent a note. And hey, if you've been listening to the show for a while and we haven't had a chance to talk, I always love hearing from folks. Uh, feel free to drop me a line on the website, coachingforleaders.com or, or hit me up on Twitter. I love chatting there too. Hey, have a great week, everyone. And I will see you next week for the Q&A show. Take care.